Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. Hi, I'm Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism at Baylor University, and welcome to Treasures of the Texas Collection. Ooh, la, la, how you gonna keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? What we have today is one of the most intriguing scenarios ever unearthed in the Texas Collection. What if the greatest hero of World War I wasn't? a certain Sergeant York of movie fame, as great a soldier as York undoubtedly was, but instead a soldier from Texas who committed acts of such astonishing bravery that would he have been awarded two, not one, but two medals of honor had it been possible to receive it. Then, despite his becoming a celebrity after the war, what if the rest of this man's life was so shrouded in mystery that he was claimed by both Baylor University and Texas A&M as one of their own. With me to dig out some sense from all this is author-screenwriter Mark Andrew Olson. Mark, welcome again. Thanks for having me. And that is just scratching the surface, but yes, that's the heart of the mystery. Uh, amazingly, this story emerged seemingly by accident during the process of researching another Treasures of the Texas Collection segment when I was um, uh, addressing the life of beloved Baylor author and folklorist Dorothy Scarborough. I was scanning some correspondence to Miss Scarborough when I came across a legal-sized typewritten letter straight from Miss Scarborough herself, ostensibly to the New York Daily News. And it seems that her opening words might be a perfect introduction to this story. And she wrote, quote, I am greatly interested in the letter in today's news by Adair Rembert, concerning Daniel R. Edwards, who has been awarded the last Congressional Medal and the Distinguished Service Cross for his sets of almost incredible courage and endurance in the Great War. Mr. Rembert suggests that the news investigate the statement that Mr. Edwards is a Texan and advocates that some suitable recognition be made of the state's admiration for his valor. Well, I have known Daniel Edwards in Columbia University, where he has been taking training as a disabled soldier to equip himself for some work by which he may earn a living. I can testify that he is a Texan and proud of the fact, and that he is a most loyal one. Before I met him, I heard from other reports of his extraordinary record as a soldier, of his disabled condition, and of his being a Texan. And soon he looked me up and greeted me as a fellow Texan and took my course in short story writing, close quote. Bob, Miss Scarborough's description of this man was so fantastical and intriguing that I, I couldn't resist a quick internet search, followed by a research request to the Texas collection. And that, to my surprise, yielded a thick file donated by one of Baylor's most unique individuals, Mr. Tommy Turner, a legendary Texas newspaperman and, and special assistant to Baylor President Abner McCall. Tommy Turner is a fascinating figure, Mark, someone I knew quite well, actually, and someone who could just about inspire an entire broadcast segment all by himself. He, he does come off as a character worth, worth getting to know. I read from a written eulogy of him that 
quote, if ever there was a human Rolodex of Texas and Baylor history, it was Tommy Turner. You name the topic, and he had you whipped from politics to sports to Baylor life. No contest, game over, period. <laughs> Mr. Turner, at President McCaw's request, had personally undertaken a decades-long investigation into Mr. Edwards' life, including many trips to meet the war hero himself. And that file has yielded the following information and the unlikely story concept that you just uh, stated. Well, then let's get started right from the beginning with the facts we know for certain. Yes. We know that Daniel R. Edwards was born at Mooreville, Texas on April 9, 1888. We also know that he entered military service at Bruceville, just south of Waco. At dawn on May 28, 1918, Private First Class Edwards and his squad... Company B, 3rd Machine Gun Battalion, 1st Infantry Division, which was just beginning its legendary record as the Big Red One, participated in a savage battle near Contigny, France. The battle in question was actually the first sustained American offensive of the war. It was also his unit's first major engagement. Although the battle has gone down overall as a win in the Allied column, a force of battled-hardened Germans, or Huns as they were called, actually deflected the surge of Edwards' infantry battalion. They were forced to pull back. Several members of his gun crew were killed trying to cover the battalion's retreat, and soon all but Edwards became casualties. Carrying his 80-pound machine gun, he suffered a number of injuries. He was bayoneted to the wrist, but he shot his attacker. However, he refused to leave his position. Edwards managed to set up his gun in the no-man's-land sector and almost single-handedly fought off attackers all day long, including a strafing run by German aircraft <laughs> and several more pushes using flamethrowers. In the process, he suffered another bayonet wound to his stomach. Eventually, the entire battalion was able to make a safe retreat because of Edwards' solitary cover fire. He remained alone in that position all day long and was rescued around nightfall, a bloody mess and more dead than alive. He was then taken to a field hospital, and there he spent the next weeks fighting for his life, awaiting return to America. Unbelievable. And you're telling me this is only the first half of what he accomplished? <laughs> that's, that's the amazing part. Conventional wisdom has it that his heroism at Contigny was more than enough to earn him the Medal of Honor. And one can assume that the wheels were already turning to do just that upon his return stateside. So what happened? What happened to derail that scenario? Surely he couldn't have been returned to his unit. No, he wasn't. And as I said, Edwards was scheduled to return home. He was to stay longer in the hospital before doing so. But it seems simple boredom played the key role in stirring him <laughs> from his bed. Few things in the modern world, I hear, are bleaker than a wartime field hospital. And those during World War I were only a few notches more sanitary and comfortable than those of the Civil War, which are so, so legendary. So when Private Edwards heard that his unit was to become involved in another crucial battle, his ears perked up. The engagement was an effort to shove the Germans back from the French uh, city of Soissons, some 70 miles from Paris on the Aisne River. Mm, I don't suppose he was given official permission to rejoin his unit, was he? No, he was not, and he certainly didn't wait for it. He, uh, he just gathered his clothes, walked out of the ward, and hitchhiked back to his old <laughs> regiment. In fact, 
Had he not been considered already a shoo-in for a Medal of Honor, he might have been at risk of a desertion charge. His commanding officer, not appraised about any return on Edward's part, asked him what was up. <laughs> and Ed- Edwards merely replied that there'd been another typical screw-up in the paperwork, and he went back to his unit, and no one asked any more questions. So at another dawn, on another miserably muddy day, July 18, 1918, Edwards and his 12-man machine gun crew again headed into an attack, this time near Soissons. Stocky and strong, Edwards was again carrying an 80-pound machine gun in complete disregard of his wounds from Cantigny, including an arm that was in utter agony. His brothers-in-arms actually carried his tripod, spare parts, and ammunition. In a sudden burst, which Baylor magazine called a hellish maelstrom of shot and shell, the other 12 members of his unit fell either dead or wounded within seconds. Edwards asked the only survivor he could find, a young lieutenant who had just lost all of his men, to help him open the machine gun. In the middle of doing so, the young officer crumpled with a bullet between his eyes. Edwards picked up and headed for a trench some 50 yards away. Weaving through heavy gunfire, he reached the trench, but as soon as he jumped inside, an artillery shell exploded nearby, hurtling him into the trench wall. He regained consciousness, still on the wall, hanging by a shattered right arm from a a lone wall support. Mm. And worse still, he could hear German voices approaching. Using the short bolo knife machine gunners carried, he finished severing his arm. Good God. I know. And cut off the blood flow himself by means of a crude tourniquet he made with his belt. Fighting off waves of pain, he pulled out his Colt 45 automatic, and when the German soldiers crept around a bend in the trench a few feet away, he dropped all four of them with a single shot each. Good Lord. Now, (laughs) if I remember the story right, he would later tell enthralled audiences that being a Texan, he had long learned to shoot with either hand, even as a boy. That's right, and he did exactly that. The stunned remaining four Germans surrendered <laughs> on the spot, and Edwards ordered them ahead of him back towards his lines. So according to legend, imagine this picture. He, he tossed his severed arm to one of the prisoners and made him carry it back to prove that he hadn't indulged in self-maiming, as a few desperate soldiers had been known to no do. No way. Yes, Just as the safety of American lines came into sight, another artillery burst blasted Edwards and his prisoners. One of them was blown to pieces. And Edwards looked down, writhing in pain, to see his left leg a bloody mess. Unbelievable. It is. (laughs) It just doesn't stop. Forcing one of the Germans to place crude splints on the leg, he dragged himself and the Germans, still hurting them around by waving his pistol, into the American position itself. Witnesses would later report that he came out of the smoke like some blood-soaked preview of hell. Before collapsing, he pulled off another cheeky move, making an officer write him out a receipt for the prisoners. (laughs) My goodness. Mark, you're right. Words fail such an astonishing level of bravery and sacrifice. It's almost as if the man didn't know how to give up. I don't know if people like that simply refuse to surrender or simply don't even know how to do it, even in the face of near certain death. Okay, now let's fast forward after his recovery, which must have been long and arduous. But first, take a moment and tell me about his decorations, of which there were plenty. That's true. Actually, Edwards was nominated for two medals of honor for his actions. 
However, the Army quickly asserted that it does not award more than one Medal of Honor to an individual for actions within the same time period. Actually, there was debate about breaking the rules for Edwards, but in the end, the Army decided it would be prudent not to set such a precedent. Therefore, Edwards was awarded the Medal of Honor for his incredible exploit at Soissons and the Distinguished Service Cross for Contigny. When Edwards received the medals, he was only one of three Americans to hold them both, and the only one to receive them in the same day. Both were pinned on him by another 1st Infantry soldier, Major General Robert Bullard, who said Edwards had, quote, the most courageous heart I have ever seen in a man. Edwards was also promoted to sergeant. Ironically, this didn't happen until Edwards had been home for over six years. Apparently, the War Department grew somewhat hard-nosed about awarding so many medals, so Edwards didn't receive his until April of 1923 in an elaborate ceremony at New York City's town hall. Amazing. Just amazing. So what do we know about post-war life for Sergeant Edwards? Now, this is where I understand the controversy begins. That's true. And it all started painfully and laboriously. Sure. Edwards spent months in the hospital recovering from his wounds and moved to New York City upon his return to the United States. He used his veterans' benefits to receive an education while in New York. Unsatisfied with an accountant training program he was placed in, Edwards eventually testified before Congress to have his benefits pay for a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. And that is where he met Dorothy Scarborough. Here's the rest of her letter to, the, to that New York newspaper. Quote, His acts of bravery seem almost beyond belief, and yet they are nearly equaled by the spirit with which, in his crippled condition, he has faced civil life. The bravery of Private Edwards, now a tradition in his battalion, again caused the morale of his comrades to be raised to a high pitch. Though he is tragically crippled with his right arm and his left leg gone, he seeks no sympathy, asks no favors, but tries to do everything he can for himself and is always attempting to do something for his disabled comrades. He's been active in the interests of the Comeback Club, the organization of disabled ex-soldiers in Colombia. Most of us would be cowardly enough to prefer that a machine gun might finish us off rather than we should live on crippled in such a fashion. But not Daniel Edwards. He is dauntless and fighting in the face of the long years that lie before him. His smiling courage is a sublime thing. Many a time I have felt a lump in my throat as he would come into my classroom, but his smile made me forget his crippled body. So, is there any record of whether Miss Scarborough's fundraising attempts bore any fruit? Not that I could find, but for the next several years, Mr. Edwards fared well in becoming a minor celebrity. We do know that Edwards was named as a press aide to Warren G. Harding's presidential campaign. He was appointed after the election to a job assisting war veterans. The famous war correspondent and adventurer Lowell Thomas wrote a biography of him titled This Side of Hell. And famous, believe it or not, cartoonist Robert Ripley, who often bragged about his accuracy, declared in a 1929 drawing that Edwards had served in 10 wars, suffered 55 wounds, and won 85 military decorations. Okay, that comes under the not part of believe it or not. I don't know if we've had 10 wars. But exactly. this is when the real confusion starts. Yes, it, well, it started soon after the war, but it only increased as time went on. 
and much of it involved the discrepancy about whether Edwards was actually a product of Baylor University, Texas A&M, both or none. Mr. Turner once wrote that Texas A&M was, quote, a bit embarrassed that for years it proudly has proclaimed Edwards as its first Medal of Honor winner. And sketches of him are included in A&M history books. A&M now admits it has no documentary evidence of Edwards ever having been a bona fide Aggie. But many of the school's early records perished in a 1914 fire, a common catastrophe in those days. Baylor also claimed him, albeit a little bit more cautiously. What was the basis for Baylor's less fulsome acceptance? Well, two things primarily. First of all, during his request to have vocational educational benefits switched to Columbia University, Mr. Edwards has testified before Congress that he had received a bachelor's degree from Baylor. And Baylor's records were incomplete, and so the university was never able to rule conclusively from its actual files. All right, all right. So what do we know for certain about the rest of Edwards' life, if anything? Well, we do know that after the 1920 election campaign, President Harding appointed Edwards to a position consulting on veterans' affairs. We know that in 1921, he married Frances Sullivan of New York and had a daughter, Joan Frances Edwards. During this time, Edwards enjoyed a celebrity status and, and toured the country giving lectures. Most of his lectures involved telling his life story with special attention to his experiences in war. He also used the lectures to promote education, especially vocational education, as a means to peace. Edwards was listed in Who's Who in America twice and was the subject of news, uh, numerous newspaper articles that sensationalized his experiences. In 1941, Edwards married a schoolteacher named Mary Haney in Georgia, his first marriage having ended in divorce. They had four children, including twin sons and a daughter. In his later years, he worked as a fishing guide on Lake Washita, Arkansas, eking out a living on his military pension and, and 1250 feet for uh, guiding fishermen. Hmm. In fact, Edwards once claimed to have discovered at least one Daniel Edwards imposter who was on a fraudulent lecture tour through Missouri and Kansas. <laughs> I guess imitation is the sincerest form of, well, you know. Exactly. Well, eventually, though no longer the celebrity he once was, Edwards was, he still reappeared in the news occasionally. He was described as an, a tough old war hero getting the most out of his golden years. Edwards died at age 70 in a Veterans Administration hospital in Little Rock in 1967. He was buried with little fanfare at the back of a small, isolated cemetery known as Cunningham Cemetery with a small government-issued tombstone at his head. That is, until 1985 when Ellen Brown of the Texas Collection Archives spotted his name in an old letter. Knowing of Mr. Turner's interest in Baylor Medal of Honor winners, she contacted him and sparked his interest. So in April of 1986, another ceremony was held, commemorating a new nicer headstone. The speakers included Orville Faubus, the governor of Arkansas, and another one-armed hero of World War I, along with a competing gubernatorial candidate who happened to be an old friend of Edwards. So... Turner's investigation did have at least one beneficial impact on Edwards. You could say that. And actually, Turner didn't let that occasion stop his search for the truth. In one letter to Turner, Edward and Cooper, Texas A&M's dean of admissions, wrote, quote, 
This Edwards case has me intrigued. Everyone knows he was here except those who really should know. (laughs) In one of his last letters to a local congressman, Turner admitted his frustration. Quote, Looks like it's almost hopeless what with the Army letting the St. Louis fire erase much of its World War I material. His life would make a great story if it could be documented, which would take more time, effort, and money than I've got. Turner died in 2008 without ever having gotten to the bottom of the Edwards story. Although he crisscrossed the South and single-handedly upholded cordial relations with both Texas A&M and Columbia University through his, res- his repeated correspondences on the subject, quote, isn't life strange and wonderful and interesting, he wrote in 1986 after one of his many reports on Edwards. It's a pleasure to still be involved in it all. And it was a pleasure to hear about this endlessly fascinating hero. Thanks for sharing the life and times of Daniel Edwards with us, Mark. And thanks for having me. Speaking of Baylor, did you know that at one time it was just one of four colleges in Waco? That's right. Waco was once home to Toby's Business College, Paul Quinn College, Adran University, and Baylor. Toby's has long since closed, and Paul Quinn, a historically African-American university, moved to Dallas about 20 years ago. But for a time, Ad-Ran was Baylor's fiercest rival. And beginning in 2012, it will become one of the Bears' fiercest rivals again. But we're getting ahead of the story. Ad-Ran, spelled A-D-D hyphen R-A-N, was founded by Joseph Addison Clark, a pioneer Texas preacher, educator, and businessman, his wife, Esther Despain Clark, and their sons, Confederate veterans Addison and Randolph. Together, the Clarks founded the Male and Female Seminary at Fort Worth, a bare-bones seminary affiliated with the Christian Church. When it was announced, the long-awaited Texas and Pacific Railroad, which would connect Fort Worth and Dallas, was going to be built, the Clarks feared the negative impact it would have on their innocent boys and girls and moved the whole darn thing to Thorpe Spring, located just three miles north of Granbury. And thus, Adran Male and Female College was officially founded on September 1st, 1873. Now, the school's odd name probably came from the joining of the first three letters of each of the Clark's two sons' first names. But the little school never really flourished in Thorpe Spring, and enrollment peaked at 445 in 1893-1894 school season. Finally, in 1889, the Clarks gave the school to the Texas Christian Church. The denomination kept the Clarks on the staff and changed the name to Adran Christian University. And it was at this time that a group of Waco businessmen entered the picture. They offered the denomination certain inducements if the entire school would move to Waco before 1896. They also promised transportation for the entire faculty, staff, and student body to Waco if that happened. Well, the Clarks agreed. So on Christmas Day, 1895, 100 individuals arrived by train in Waco and paraded through the city before hundreds of cheering shoppers. Those same 100 people then moved to the Baptist Auditorium, where another 5,000 people heard a number of welcoming speeches, including one by Baylor University President Rufus C. Burleson. That's pretty impressive when you consider there were only about 20,000 people in the whole city of Waco at the time. The inducements to Adran Christian College included the opportunity to purchase and occupy the campus and buildings of the now-defunct Waco Female College, sometimes listed as Waco Female Academy, for a mere $3,000. 
The main building of the Waco Female Academy was one of the largest structures west of the Mississippi, four stories high, and it featured steam, heat, and artesian water and presided over a beautiful 13-and-a-half-acre plot. But within a year of its completion, the Depression of 1893 to 1895 saw the school go bankrupt, and it closed in 1893. Waco had an empty building, Adran needed a home, a perfect fit. Well, so it seemed at the time, anyway. While Waco's warm welcome for Adran Christian University was no doubt genuine, the fierce interdenominational struggle kept enrollment low. Between 1895 and 1902, enrollment never arose above about 200 students. Money was tight and resources were scarce. Despite its small size, Adran began playing football in 1896, and their first opponent was Toby's Business College, even though the plucky little college didn't even have a mascot yet. Eventually, the school named the Horn Frogs as their mascot, and although official school colors were not chosen for another couple more years, they were in business. And, not surprisingly, almost from the start, Baylor was Adran's primary rival as both schools competed for financial support and students. Still, Adran persevered, and it paid off the last of its notes on November 1901. On March 14, 1902, the Board of Trustees renamed the school, now sporting purple and white as its official colors. The name? Well, you probably guessed by now, Texas Christian University. Of course, from the beginning, everybody called it TCU, and still does. Soon began a series of epic football battles between the Horned Frogs and the Bears, which sometimes spilled over into fights between the players on the field fans in the stands, and occasionally, according to the old newspapers, even on the trolley rides home. Enrollment did finally grow, and by 1908, great care was lavished on the beautifully landscaped campus. But TCU's trustees didn't believe that the school could ultimately survive in this same small town as another Christian college. They began at first covertly and then openly soliciting offers to relocate the university and in time heard from Fort Worth, Dallas, McKinney, Amarillo, Sweetwater, and even Hubbard. Waco was permitted to make a presentation as well, but it quickly became obvious that TCU, formerly Adran, was planning to leave. But before a decision was formally announced, fate played a sad hand. On Tuesday, March 22, 1910, a fire erupted on the roof of the beautiful main building. Within minutes, the building was blazing and students and faculty tumbled out of the building. Soon, the entire building was consumed. Fortunately, no one was injured, which could, and the fire, which could be seen as far away as West Texas, dominated the landscape. And in the process, irreplaceable records and photographs were forever lost. Wacoans opened their homes, of course, to display students and numerous buildings and organizations, including... Baylor made their facilities available for classrooms and labs. Some classes arranged to meet in the surviving buildings or at the homes of professors. At this time, Wacoans also worked hard to keep TCU and raised nearly $40,000. Fort Worth, however, raised $100,000, along with the promise of another $100,000 from the sale of city lots and made the offer of a 50-acre campus just on the southwest of the city's limits. And that was enough. The official announcement of TCU's move to Cowtown was made on May 11, 1910. And Fort Worth's 30,000 citizens rejoiced, and I assume they still are. 
Unfortunately, virtually nothing of ADRAN TCU survives in Waco. TCU and Baylor competed in every sport beginning in 1914 in the old Southwest Conference and remained those fierce rivals until the conference folded in 1996 when Baylor left to join the Big 12. However, and it's funny how history repeats itself, I guess, it was announced in 2011 that Baylor and TCU would be reunited again in the newly reconfigured Big 12. If you would like to learn more about the endlessly fascinating life of Daniel Edwards or ADRAN or TCU in Waco, the Texas collection on the Baylor campus has the largest collection of documents, books, letters, photographs, memoirs, diaries, magazines, and newspaper articles on Edwards and ADRAN than just about anywhere in the country. For more information, visit baylor.edu slash lib, that's L-I-B slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection was made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by Community Bank and Trust of Waco. This has been a production of KWBU, 103.3 FM, public radio for Central Texas.